Thank you for listening to We Have Ways of Making You Talk. Sign up to our Patreon to receive bonus content, live streams and our weekly newsletter with money off books and museum visits as well. Plus early access to all live show tickets. That's patreon.com slash we have ways. Achtung, Achtung, welcome to We Have Ways of Making You Talk with me, Al Murray, and James Holland, of course, the Second World War podcast for all your Second World War podcast needs. Um, how are you, Jim? <laughs> uh, yeah, I'm all right. Well, I'm a bit frazzled, but, but I mean, you're looking jolly well. You have a bit of a tan well, there. Well, that's, um, go to Sydney and back in a week and uh, film outdoors all day, every day, and that will, that it, will, it, will, it will catch up with you. That will give you an even hue. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's exactly. It's exactly the word we're looking for. We, the last uh, sort of big project we did, or the big sort of uh, chunk of stuff we did, was uh, to talk about Stalingrad. And we've had an excellent response from our listeners, and it's been a, it's been a thing that people have really, really gone for. Mm. And that led me that led me to thinking, um, and also because uh, we have West Ways Fest three in September. This is the thing we've decided on as a theme: is that we need to talk about nineteen forty three. It's an undersold year, isn't it? As Let's a, face it. Well, exactly. And and um, when I, when this idea occurred to me, I started to sort of draw up a list of what um, what what went on in nineteen forty three. It's it's a year with is it a year where more happens? You know, like tent pole events happen, perhaps than any other. It's certainly. Yeah, I, I, it's certainly I, I think a, it is. I've also been giving quite a lot of thought to Stalingrad, what it means, what they could have. Yeah. I mean, haven't I mean, do, do you know? Because you do these, you do the, we do these kind of deep dives. Yeah. And then afterwards, in idle moments, you're kind of walking the dog and you're kind of sort of thinking, mm, you know, what could have been different and stuff. And, and I kind of can't help thinking, they should have just gone to Moscow. What, the, 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 the Germans? Yeah, you know, if they'd focused yeah, on they'd Moscow. Have, and they'd they'd focused on off. Moscow in 1941. Focused in Moscow in 1942. They would have, they would have got there. Yeah. And if they'd focused on Moscow and Leningrad, you've then severed two of the well the I biggest mean, cities. But also, but this and they is could have got those, and you, you could you could stay, you could get most of Ukraine and certainly west of the Dnieper, and, and just at that point, don't even think about the Caucasus because yeah. you haven't got the means to get the oil back anyway. So it's a it's a red herring in in many ways. Yeah. And if you defeat the Soviet Union, then you can trot in there at your heart's content. Well, but and this is the thing: if you have captured Ukraine, you've essentially, um, and and uh, you know, Kharkiv is the big tank city, uh, and uh, you know, it's where the T thirty fours are from. You know, if if we're going to pick a sort of emblematic piece of Soviet engineering and w- war machinery, the thing is, is before Case Blue, um, the Germans have essentially acquired economic parity with the Soviet Union. They have the, they have the, the yes. Ukrainian grain. They have Kharkiv with the tank fa- tank factories. They don't have they don't have um, Soviet oil, but the Soviets don't have Romanian oil. So, I- I- in effect, at that point before Case Blue, you're kind of level, aren't you? Uh, 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 if you're Germany and, and the Soviet Union, I guess so. And, and also, the factories at the Urals are starting to really, really kick in, but they haven't up to that point. No. So, what what is the thing that comes to the Soviet Union's rescue in the second half of 1942? It's Ned Lease. It's Ned Lease. Um, and I, I've been, uh, 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 before we get rolling in 1943, here, 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 
By the 30th of June 1943, the United States shipped more than 3.4 million tonnes of goods to Stalin, including barbed wire, 4,000 tonnes a month, machine guns, 120,000. So they're using Brownings. Thompson submachine guns, another 120,000. Anti-tank mines, 60,000 per month. Anti-aircraft guns, 5,117 during the second protocol. Tarpaulin, guess how much tarpaulin? Oh, shut to think. 24 million square yards. Oil, oil That's pipe. That's a lot of tarp, isn't it? That, it is. Oil, oil pipe. pipe. Go on, Edgar, give me the oil pipe. Give me oil pipe. Seven, 75,000 tonnes of oil pipe and tu- tubing. TNT. Wow. Wow. 181,366 tonnes of TNT. Now, the key, to Second World, the key to Second World War m- manoeuvre warfare is radio... Um, uh, Radio and communications, right? We're agreed on that. That, yep. that, that yep. you know, if you look at the if you 100%. look at the fall of France, if you look at the fall of France, the German tanks are you know are training tanks really, and the, no, they're, they've only got absolutely a nothing controversial of, about that at all. Handful of Panzer threes and fours and all that, and the French have got may have more tanks, but you know, in the numbers numbers game, yep. they aren't as well connected. Field telephones shipped by July of nineteen forty three, one hundred and seventy three thousand. Telephone wire, five hundred eighty thousand miles, right? And 220,000 miles of telephone wire. I yeah, mean, just, yeah, exactly. just try and think what that is. 580,000. 580,000. Yeah, I mean, how many times does that go around the world? That's a lot, isn't it? It's, uh, that goes yes, I know. We're not, neither of us do numbers uh, very okay. well. Okay, what is it? 22,000 miles round, isn't it? The equator? Yes, yeah, the circumference? Like that. Yeah, yeah. That, that's so it's just, a lot. That's, that, already my brain is starting to hurt just trying to think right, about okay. that. Right, um, okay. Also, because because this is all uh, I mean the reason I'm bringing this up is this is all this is all before the Kursk battle and Kursk is after all the great and is this is, and is all these statistics is this coming from David Edgerton or is this coming from no this is Sean McKeekin Stalin. book Stalin Stalin's War that um, John McManus recommended we read uh, his stuff about Kursk is absolutely fascinating right because Kursk is the centerpiece battle I think for many in many people's imaginations. As forty three get you know it's the it's the it's the high water mark in the in the middle of the year eastern front battle you know it's touted as the great the greatest tank battle of all time and that's rather been the the feathers have rather been plucked off that idea that, that yeah but forget, of, but 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 even the whole tank thing is a red herring it's still an absolutely yes, know, know, phenomenal achievement but listen to this listen to this so not only that they put in one hundred and forty four American cranes and hoists over the winter. With shovels, vast quantities of shovels and compressors. So when you're building your fortifications at Kursk, you're able to do it because of American material. I know, you know, I'm not. We're not talking about air cobras here, and we're not talking about M3 Stuarts, which were actually critical at one point in 1942. We're talking about engineering equipment, pneumatic right? drills, and how dozers. Much, how, much, and... how much leather by mid 43? <laughs> numbers are amazing. <laughs> Go on, then I don't know. Um, uh, 19.34 million tons of leather. Wow. So, so, so anyone who's anyone who doubts the importance of Lend-Lease primarily to the Eastern Front needs yeah. a head examining. Three point one four million pairs of boots shipped by July forty three. Four hundred thousand pairs of boots arriving in Russia every month. Right, trucks and jeeps one hundred twenty thousand. Warplanes two thousand four hundred. They're flying them um, from Alaska to Siberia on this on, on on a on a route that way where the where the American pilots so that there's this whole arrangement where the Americans aren't allowed to fly the aircraft into 
Soviet Union. They're collected in Alaska by the Soviets. I mean, the, 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 then there's and there's raw materials. So there's manufactured stuff, but then there's copper, uh, 12,500 tonnes arriving monthly, 3,000 tonnes so far of nickel in 43, ferrochrome, ferrosilicon, 800 tonnes each, refined steel products. I mean, it's... It, it's it, absolutely phenomenal, isn't it? Because the interesting thing is, is it, go on, go on, you say. Well, it is abs- It is absolutely phenomenal. Um, and absolutely every truck that the Americans supply is a truck the Soviets don't have to build, right? We're, we're right to talk about, this, you know, the Soviet miracle, uh, uh, part of the Soviet miracle of, of sort of industrial rebirth is they move the factories behind the Urals. And so they're out of the range of any potential German strategic bombing campaign. Not that there is one. Right. But any the possibility of it. Um, but every truck, every tank, every aircraft that, that the Americans supply is one that the Soviets don't have to build. The, the, the Soviets are operating more B-20 bombers than the U.S. Air Force in 1943. Why don't more people know about this? Well, well, and that's what's really interesting is that the, 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 the Soviets really make it very, very clear that no one's allowed to talk about it. The, what's the one item they turn down? <laughs> in the American inventory. Mine detectors. <laughs> Why? My, in the Soviet Union, according to General Ivan Ratov, in the Soviet Union, we use people to clear mines. <laughs> oh, my God. Right, so, so the, the, the thing is, it's 1943, and we, you know, we're talking a year with Stalingrad, um, Tunisia... Uh, the invasion of Sicily, the inv- and, and the invasion of Sicily. After all, the, the thing about I mean, Sicily is of course coincident with Kursk. So, that, and there is the argument that Hitler, um, uh, you know, gets cold feet during the Kursk offensive because of Sicily, which sort of turns the Kursk victory, you could argue, into an Allied victory because because he, he can't complete what he's trying to complete against the Soviets in forty three in Kursk because he's got other problems. And also because yeah. he can't deliver the air cover he needs for an offensive there properly because he's covering the med. And also because the Soviet army is equipped with Lend-Lease equipment. So it turns it into a 3D allied victory that, you know, and for all the for all Stalin going, I need that second front now, you buggers. You're not you're letting me down here. We're doing all the bleeding. Sicily yeah, yeah, yeah. is the th- Sicily that which isn't which to some people isn't seen as a second front, though. As the last time I looked, Sicily was in Europe and, you know, Italy's in Europe. There's all this talk of mainland Europe, right? You know, Italy certainly is mainland Europe, whichever way you cut it. You, you know that the, the, the three, what you've got in the in the in 1943, and I think the Kursk battle illustrates this very well, is all the levers being pulled all at once by all of the Allies. And whatever whatever you do in one theatre, the other theatres are also affecting it. If you're the Germans, yes. because the Germans, after all, have got themselves into this two front war into a massive pickle yeah ex- exactly and and at the same time as, as this is all happening the strategic bomber offensive is ramping up so just as for just as for every aircraft the american man, man, every aircraft the americans manufacture and supply or tanks the americans manufacture and supply is one the soviets don't have to every anti-aircraft gun the germans have to manufacture to deal with the strategic bombing offensive is an anti-tank gun they can't build or a tank they can't build or a, or whatever and so that 43 is the year in which if you if you're if you're one of those people who sees the second world war as an economic and industrial war this is the year that comes clearly into focus people are no longer running on on the fumes of pre-war rearmament they're running on the fruits of basically the american economy uh, completely doing a 180 
1941. And if yep. you consider, you know, the, 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 the Tunisian camp, you know, the North African campaign, which which starts at the end of 42 and comes to fruition in the summer of uh, spring, summer of 1943, you know, with the Americans, the Americans land in North Africa less than a year after Germany has declared war on them. How the hell have they, how the hell have they done that? Yeah, it's extraordinary. And that's and we've talked about on the podcast, we've talked before about 1941 being a very difficult year for the Americans because they're half in, half out. They're trying to mobilize and mobilizing is difficult if you're half in, half out, because you can't you can't get your army, your soldiers, a lot of your soldiers, especially if they're conscripted to take the thing seriously, because there is no global emergency as far as they're concerned in the US. So by 1943, you've seen all of those problems ironed out. And the Allies are capable of clearing a continent, North Africa, of, of the German and Italian threat, in, knocking Italy out of the war, seizing Sicily, uh, 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 you know, doing a massive amph- combined amphibious operation, you know, a long way from the US and far enough away from the UK, and then uh, entering mainland Europe. You know, and this is, I think it's very interesting that very often the sort of you know, the, the Soviet angle, which is where's the second front, is almost a thing that, that, that allied historians of the Second World War or the allied perception of the Second World War, it's come to be a thing that D-Day gets talked about as a second front, even in, even in allied historiography, even in Duke historiography. Well, what the hell is Italy then if it's not a second front? <laughs> What the hell is North Africa if it's not a second well, it's the first, front? It's a, well, it's the first front. That's the point, isn't it? And then it's, and well, then I suppose. Normally it's the second suppose, front. But, but, it's, but, but, but it's the a, second front a, also means it's second tier, doesn't it? It kind of means it's, yes. it, when it's not. It's a, the moment everyone, you know, half the team shift from, from Italy to, to, to Britain in preparation for Operation Overlord. So suddenly that, that moment, that becomes the primary theatre. It might be the second front, but it's also the primary theatre. <laughs> And and that's the that's the trouble for, for, for certainly from a, from an Italian point of view. But but the, the other thing about all this and about all this lend lease is just the gargantuan amount of shipping that yeah. is being demanded and, and being used. So Britain starts a war with ten, uh, roughly ten thousand merchant ships and loses a quarter of those in the course of the war, but also replenishes a lot of them. Um, yeah. And and we've said before, haven't we, that, that on any moment, on any minute, and any given day of the Second World War, on average, 2,000 British ships are going around the world. Yeah. Well, obviously, by 1943, you can double that in terms of American. So you've got, you know, about 5,000 thousand yeah. allied ships moving around the oceans at any one time <laughs> on any given day at any minute you know just imagine what five thousand ships looks like i mean yeah. it is it is it is absolutely phenomenal and yet so much of the allied effort in 1943 is hidebound by the shipping crisis which develops at the second end of 1942. And this ends because, and th- this absolutely detects what, dictates what happens in 1943. The big problem is, is that they think they're going to be in Tunisia by Christmas. It all sounds yeah. very familiar, doesn't it? Hoping, thinking you're yeah. going to be somewhere by Christmas and then not. And 
it, obviously the Tunisian campaign then runs on until the 13th of May 1943 yeah. so an extra five yeah. months and that extra five months requires extra five months worth of shipping and it requires a huge amount of shipping because while the number of troops hasn't been hugely expanded the number of aircraft and air parts and bombs and ordnance yeah. and all the rest of it absolutely yeah. has and food and rations and and yeah. all the other supplies that you need to kind of maintain your effort yeah and the knock-on effect of this because you you're you're always forward planning and yeah you know, any shipping operation from one side of an ocean to another takes about 120 days there and back, you know, to, to get, you know, get it loaded up, get it out of the port, get it to the next port, get that unloaded, get back again. So the planning is, is, is a huge process, incredibly complex. There is this huge crisis about how are we going to manage what we need to manage in yeah. terms of maintaining the effort in the Soviet Union, maintaining the effort in the Pacific, which has actually got much bigger than everyone had appreciated, yeah. because once you start, you can't stop. Yeah. And then he's operates further operations in the, in the Mediterranean. And this is one of the big reasons, of course, why, why the Americans particularly, um, who are much more interested in the Pacific theatre than, than the British are at this time, yeah. are so worried about going into Sicily, then going into southern Italy. I mean, they can see the point of it. They absolutely get it and all the rest of it. But surely if you draw a straight line, you know, the quickest way to Berlin is from kind of northern France rather than going through lots of mountains in Sicily or or, or Italy. And the scale of commitment, when you add in Lend-Lease to the Soviet Union, plus operations in the Pacific, plus operations in China, let's not forget that either, which is, you know, one can argue a flawed policy, maybe plus what's going on in the Mediterranean, is, is just, it's absolutely stupendously vast, complicated and difficult. And one of the big yeah. things, of course, is, is that battles can be over in a day. You know, a city can be bombed in one night, but shipping takes months. Yeah. And so yeah. you're operating, yeah. your, your, your whole effort has to be operated at different, completely different and often contradictory well, timescales. Well, nine, essentially a nine-month cycle on shipping, isn't it, uh, effect, yeah. effectively? Let's, let's sell 1943 as the most important year of the Second World War. Yeah. Let's okay, do so, but sell, all we've been doing sell, is a bit of context, isn't it? A bit of context. Yeah, yes. Yeah. bit of context. So, so let, let's sell the idea to the... Because after all, I've always... Well, we've always... Long-term listeners of the podcast will know that I think 1943 is the year in which Germany ought to throw in the towel. That, that, it's the that, daddy year, they, isn't it, as far as you're it's concerned? The, it's the year, exactly, because the, the North African campaign ends in Tunisia with how many men in the... What, a quarter of a million men going into the bag? quarter of a million men. Yeah, but it's the material that's almost as, as bad as... Well, it, well, well, as it, having lost two and a half thousand aircraft. Yeah, but across the entire campaign, 975,000 German-Italian soldiers... Killed or captured, right? That's <laughs> just so much, isn't it? At the start of night, you know, as 1943 begins, there's the prospect of that theatre basically being closed down completely. What we're what we're looking at is rather than an, an allied process of the odd win here, you know, like because after all, 1942 is the you know the, the genus feast year of the Second World War, which starts in starts in <laughs> starts in defeat and ends in victory. But but, but you know, rather than the your odd Alamein, your odd Stalingrad, what you've actually got is a conclusive campaign. Casablanca, Morocco. <laughs> Casablanca, Morocco. But you've got you've got these conclusive a conclu- a conclusion of a campaign in North Africa, which is which given. So, so that's what 1943 offers. That's why I would argue that absolute writing on the wall for the Germans. And, they've, and 
Hitler insists on reinforcing Tunisia, even though he's obviously going to lose. Reinforcing failure. So Why doesn't mindset. he reinforce Sicily? Why doesn't he reinforce Sicily? Well, I've no, I've no idea. Well, because he's getting I mean, bad advice at this point, and maybe listening to bad advice or taking his own advice. Because after all, the core of the core of Hitler's decision making. I think he's pretty much is, taking his own advice. Well, this is the but isn't this but isn't this this is the core of the problem of Hitler's decision making? Is we we never know really who he's listening to, and the generals post war all said, well, he wouldn't listen to us. The crazy bastard. <laughs> we would tell him that's a bad idea, and he'd go, "No, I'm going to do my thing." Uh, and if only, if only, you know, they they have their own little stab in the back myth worked out for after second well, world war. Well, they absolutely do. To us. They absolutely do. But 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 what is absolutely clear, it's completely the case, is that someone comes up to him with an idea, and he goes, "Ah, yeah, yeah, I like that. Uh, I'm not going to make that my idea." Because yeah, obviously yeah, I'm a monetary genius. Um, <laughs> and, and, you know, von Manstein, Guderian, they sort of get, get disappear into the kind of, you know, the background on, on, on the decision-making process. But, it, but, but he never, he rarely has an original thought of his own. It's nearly yeah. always somebody else. And what he does is he hangs on to that until such time that he suddenly decides, actually, no, he, it, it, it's time for a gear shift. It, it, it's fascinating. So this idea that he's just making unilateral decisions entirely on his own, he's making unilateral decisions, but he's not making them entirely on his own because they're always being yeah. suggested by someone in the first place. Yeah, yeah. And, 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 and usually the one that, that, that is the most aggressive um, is the one and, and has the most obvious immediate chance for glory is the one that he yeah. goes for. Yeah, and, and of course, sort of extraordinary grasp of minute detail, didn't he, that he would use to... That he used to argue with people to shut them up, wouldn't he? Yeah. He, he, yep. he, he had a sort of strange memory for for sort of t- tiny detail, <laughs> and would yes. and would use that use that to crush people and say, "Well, you don't even know what's going on in that platoon." And they'd be thinking, "God, I don't know about that platoon." But he he, he would do that, wouldn't he? Or he'd talk about yeah. the weaponry that way. He he had he had a memory for how the weaponry all worked and how it all related to each other um, I, but so, so i'm a bit so like that actually have... i'm a bit like that I can, I, can, I, I can remember tank production figures but i can't remember what anyone's called oh god well, you're not wearing your what would hitler do wristband are you um the 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 um the the thing is though but so 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 what we have in north africa is a concluded campaign a finished campaign yes what we what we have over Europe is the beginning of the sort of actual successful prosecution of the strategic bombing campaign, which is which is because there are so many campaigns going on that obviously all interconnect and interrelate. Yeah, but I mean, it's, it's really. I it's think what, if we're talking about nineteen forty three, though, what we, what we you need to kind of frame it as well with with the Casablanca conference, uh, which which happens in January, because that is the kind of. Okay, so the North Africa campaign isn't going as we planned. We've got a shipping crisis on our hands. What are we going to do about it? What's the policy? And and there's some really big things that get decided there. So at this point, the Western Allies are not fully sort of coordinated in with with the Soviet Union by any stretch of the imagination. But obviously, this huge amount of Lend-Lease is heading their way, all of which is a massive tick for the overall Allied war effort. But but the first thing, one of the first things that comes out of, uh, and I think this is really, really important, that comes out of Casablanca, is they're going to um, f- try and defeat once and for all the U-boats, the wolf packs in the Atlantic. And as we said many, many times before, 
The Atlantic is such an important theatre because through the Atlantic, everything flows. You know, if you want to, if you want to open a second front or the primary front or whatever you want to call it across the channel, you've got to have those sea lanes open because everything is flowing into Britain from which you then launch your attack across the English Channel. You, you know, even if you're coming from Australia, um, it's still got to get to, to Britain via the Atlantic. You know, you've got to go round round South Africa and, and into the Atlantic and uh, South Atlantic and up to the Northern Atlantic, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So the Atlantic is really, and because they've got this this knock on effect shipping crisis because of the over because Tunisia has taken much longer than they'd planned. They really need to be able to plan properly, and you can't plan properly when you don't know how many ships are going to come across the Atlantic. You know, if you're if you're going to constantly be having convoys where you're 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 losing kind of you know ten to twenty ships out of forty, you know that's a massive problem. So one of the big decisions is right, we're going to go all out on this. And, and to be fair to the Brits, the Brits have been focusing massively on upping their game technologically and, and have got to a point where they're absolutely in on this. So you know they know how to kind of technologically defeat the, the wolf packs, which are by and large using submersibles rather than proper submarines. You know, these are, are vessels which operate for the most part on the surface of the water, not under it. Um, the moment they go under the water, which they can they can do, they lose speed, which means they lose striking um, a power. And what happens is is the 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 air gap where where reconnaissance aircraft can, can't can't find U boats has been closed, and they go all out to try and absolutely hammer these U boats, and they succeed by May. And they're using the and they and and really importantly. They're using Liberators, right? Which are yep. Lend-Lease aircraft. Lend-Lease aircraft. Yes. Yes. VLR, very long range, um, which are equipped with cannons, rockets, you know, cavity magnetron, all this stuff, amazing um, ASDIC, all this sort of, you know, onboard radar, all this stuff. Lee lights. Yes, exactly. The lights as Fine well, enough. which means they can, there's Fine no escape even at night. Well, strangely enough, a friend of mine who's just started listening to the podcast, hello, Sally, she told me about her grandfather who um, was testing a Lee light in a, in a Wellington and they went into the sea, into the North, into the um, Irish Sea um, in their Wellington because the Wellington wasn't up to the Lee light, carrying the Lee light in the weather. And they got picked up after three or four days in a dinghy in, in oh. the Irish Sea. Whoa. Um, and I think that, I think that was in I think that was in forty two, and then in forty four he was shot down over Burma in his in his uh, Dakota on I think on on a supply run. Uh, anyway, but 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 survive. Uh, hello, Sally. Thanks for listening. Survive, survive both uh, both occasions. Wow, yes. yeah. wow, wow, wow. Picked up That's a DFC amazing. What a story. second one because because uh, he got his crew out. But 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 the point but the point it is, sounds like he could have got the, one on the first one. To be honest, well, you, it does, doesn't it? The, these things are, 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 are possible because of lend lease, but you can only deliver lend lease. I mean, these, these these things are like a, a, a Mobius strip, aren't they? You can only deliver the lend lease if the shipping lanes are clear. So you're using the lend lease to clear clear the shipping lanes. You can you 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 can only you can only reliably deliver goods across um, the Pacific to, from San Francisco to Vladivostok, right? If you know you've got enough ships because they're not being attrited in the Atlantic, that 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 everything depends on everything else. That that, that the Second World War is a is a it, that film from last year. Everything everything everywhere all at once. The Second World War is an everything everywhere all at once event. Everything is happening everywhere all at once and the tommy gun that you can deliver to the soviets is one you can't deliver to the burma theater or is one you can't supply to you know people fighting in italy everything's an opportunity everything is an opportunity cost 
And this is, I think, the, 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 the thing the Allies understand and, ad- and, ad- and address is that everything is an opportunity cost, isn't it? Absolutely everything you do uh, reduces your chances of doing it somewhere else. We need to take a quick break right now. We'll see you in a moment. I'm Anthony Scaramucci, former White House Director of Communications and Wall Street financier. And I'm Katty Kay, U.S. Special Correspondent for BBC Studios. I've been covering American politics for almost three decades. Welcome to The Rest is Politics U.S., brought to you by Goalhanger. Go on, tell us, were those donations you made, like Obama in 2008, was that idealism? Were you hoping to get something out of these campaigns that would serve your own business interests, for example? So I think this will either make this podcast incredibly successful, Caddy, or people <laughs> will be horrified and they'll shut it off right now because I'm going to be very real with you. The Obama donation, I had gone to law school with President Obama. We were not classmates. I was a few years ahead of him. It was 2007. He was then Senator Obama. I had a check in my breast pocket. I went over to the senator. I said, Senator, I said, you and I didn't really know each other in law school, but I'm about to hand you a big check. Can I lie to my friends and tell them that you and I knew each other in law school? Well, Obama looks at me, had the best smile in American politics since Jack Kennedy. Forever. Yeah. He lights up. He looks at me and says, I'll tell you what, if you double the amount of the check, we'll take it back to Hawaii. Okay. And I looked at him. I said, you're done. I had another check in my pocket. I ripped it up. I doubled the amount of the check. And I'm going to tell you right now, I've been to more White House Christmas parties during the Obama administration than the Trump administration. In this pivotal year for the United States, democracy and world affairs, Britain's biggest podcast, The Rest is Politics, is launching stateside. Uncovering secrets from inside the Biden and Trump inner circles and how they shape the world's most important economy, but also the global economy, too. New episodes are released every Friday morning. Just search The Rest is Politics U.S. wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to We Have Ways of Making You Talk. It's, just, I think, striking about the Casablanca conference. If you compare it to the, you know, the Nazi approach to the war, which is kind of a hand-to-mouth existence. If we can get that oil, we can carry on. If we can get Ukraine, we'll have enough food. And the Soviets are living in reaction to that. Here are the Western allies sitting down and saying, well, we're going to do this, we're going to do that. Here's our timescale. We're running on a shipping timescale. Would you say that... that, that that, you know, in the end, this is sort of the, the, the fundamental difference between the combatants is that the the uh, uh, you know the, the Allies are technocratically managing it. The Germans are like running it on like whatever Hitler wakes up and has for breakfast, and the Soviets are engaged in a kind of geopolitical revolutionary struggle against an ideological enemy, and so. The Soviets have one thing to do, which is force the force the um, Germans out of the Soviet Union one way or another, and if they can, gobble up the countries that they'd already gobbled up. Whereas the allies, the allies are engaged in a completely necessarily because all of their warfare is expeditionary, but are engaged in a completely different ball game. Totally, totally. But 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 it also yes, the Germans are always 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 chasing their tail, and that goes back to. 
their historical approach to war and, the, and, and their geographical situation, which, of course, is in the centre of Europe. And, you know, they haven't got access to the world's oceans. They haven't got a big merchant fleet. They haven't got a big navy. You know, how do you get around that? Well, it's, it's you know, you, you, you go and get your resources from, from somewhere on a, on a massive landmass, which happens to be in kind of Europe and, and, and Asia, and that's your only real option. Um, uh, you know, and, and that's why the whole German way of war is designed for short, sharp, quick battles, and it's 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 always been the way they go about things, and that's the whole point of 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 uh, case yellow and case red. You know, the invasion of the um, uh, of the Low Countries and France is that it's all supposed to be over really, really quickly. The whole point of Barbarossa is it's supposed to be over really, really quickly. And this is why I've always kind of thought that I'm, I'm completely um, I'm trying I'm um, I'm convinced about. About 1943 being the, the absolute turning point, but I still think Germany gets itself into a position where it's very, very unlikely to go, to win the war by 1941, end of 1941, just because it's it's just running out of everything, and it, and it's you, you know Barbarossa just hasn't worked, and and the whole of Barbarossa is designed in exactly that same mentality that you've just just outlined. This sort of you know. We have to do this in three months because if we don't do it in three months, we won't have enough food, we won't have enough oil, we won't have enough anything to keep, keep going. Um, so that's why we have to do it this way. Whereas, as you point out, the, the, the Western allies are, you know, after the kind of first couple of years in which kind of Britain's holding on and kind of sort of probing around and trying to find weak spots, for the most part, it's being, um, and Britain, even from the start of the war, is, is being incredibly pragmatic about the importance of shipping and, and, um, uh, um, piling in resources and technolo technology and know-how into the Battle of the Atlantic, which it quite rightly recognises as the most important theatre. But, but, but the Allies, certainly from kind of, sort of second half of 1942 and into 1943, are, it, it, it's all about planning, and it really is all about planning in, from the beginning of 1943, which is what makes it such a pivotal year. It's like, OK, well, we, 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 you know, we know where we're at now. We know what we've got to do. We know where we are in the war. We know where we are in the world. We're, we're now getting an idea of what we need to, to be enabled to do what we need to do and defeat Imperial Japan and the Axis powers. And, and we reckon it's this and we have to hit this particular fence post clearing the u-boats we have to hit this particular fence post destroying the luftwaffe we have to do this x y and z and then we can operate in the way that we want to operate so you're absolutely right it's a completely totally different way of looking at it and the, and the total global enormity of the allied the western allied effort and obviously particularly that of the united states is just astonishing well, which which leads me to the to my supplementary question or thought, which is, does nineteen forty three go according to plan for the Allies? It, it, you know, because after all, that, that that's always one of the great everything went according to plan is what Monty would always say, and then people go, well, actually, it didn't quite, mate. Um, uh, but but did nineteen forty three essentially goes according to plan? At the end of the year, they've pretty much done what they've set out to do that year, except for defeat germany which is the expectation that at some point well germany i think there's i think there's a couple of other caveats actually and, go on well the, by the end of 1943 they absolutely have not destroyed the luftwaffe which is which is which is prompted this huge crisis in how you conduct strategic air power strategic air power being where you're using air forces independently of any other forces and tactical air power being where you're you're supplementing what is going on on the ground and that's a real problem because, of course, D-Day 
Operation Overlord is 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 hovering around the corner at that point, due to be launched in May 1944, and and a prerequisite of that is that you clear clear the um, airspace over Northwest Europe of the Luftwaffe, and they they haven't done that, and they don't look like they're going to do it either. Although there is a sort of a little kind of a seed a seed of hope, which is the arrival of the P fifty one Mustang. Well, and that, that's largely because it turns out the big bomber formations c- can't really defend themselves. Uh, against a German fighter attack. That, that, that conception of the sort of bris, bristling hedgehog of, of uh, flying fortresses or whatever, it doesn't work. And, and, and that they base their assumptions on a, on, a, on, a, on a tactical approach that hasn't delivered its strategic effect. So they're going to have to think of, they're going to have to think of something else is what, what it comes down to. And, and as you say, that lead, and of course, one of the, things they're up against over northwest Europe is the weather the weather doesn't deliver you the skies that it does over North Africa or over Italy even um, and so what you can't do is rely on clear days for accurate bombing or clear days even to get a formation up to do the thing you're trying to do so so well by the end of the year when that problem's made itself clear you run out of weather anyway so even if you find a solution within 1943, you're probably not going to be able to deliver it over the winter. And if you look at, if you look at what Bomber Command do in the winter of 43-44, where they try and bomb Berlin, and it's a disaster, that's largely down to, uh, you know, the weather, you know, because Bomber Command by the end of 43 has essentially got its tactical method worked out. Obviously, there's going to be refinement and improvement as the as the following year comes they've essentially got the bomber stream figured out they've got pathfinding figured out but if you if you're up against bad northwestern european weather you can't deliver with the impact that you that you hope to that you did in the middle of the year because that's one of the the interesting things about bomber command is they have two incredibly spectacular successes in 43 with chastise with the dams raid in may and then with uh, Gomorrah, with the destruction of Hamburg in uh, in July of, of forty three, and I, I think what's always quite interesting about Hamburg is that's that always seems a little bit early in uh, in Bomber Command's strategic progress. It sort of happens just that tiny bit before they're capable of doing it again. It's got an element of fluke, hasn't it? Because the weather works. And well, window, part of it is part works. of it is because they. It's, yeah, so window is this this these sort of strips of aluminium that they uh, tin foil that you you, know, you drop and it scrambles the uh, the enemy radar and and they've had it for a little while but they've never used it until they use it in Operation Gomorrah this this you know multiple night assault on on Hamburg at the end of July and beginning of August 1943 and and it completely fools the the the, the Germans the, the German defence system which has grown up organically and 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 has been responsive again rather than than prepared beforehand. Um, so, so how the because the Germans are always on the attack, they haven't bothered to do an air defence system. So, only once once bombing starts, do they start doing it. And because bombing Allied bombing in 1941 and 42 is so feeble uh, and not really anything too much to worry about, with the odd exception of the thousand bomber raids at the end of May 1942, for example, on Cologne. Apart from that, you know, it hasn't really been that bad. So, so they're able to just sort of develop it um, uh, organically, and of course. That's not the best way to do something, and it's not very coordinated, and frankly, it's not very effective. And one of the big problems with the German defence system is that it's done on areas, so that what you have is, you, you, you know, Northwest Europe is, and Germany is divided into grids, and you have, in that area, you have 
yeah boxes and you have you know you have night fighters in that 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 box and you have um ground control and all that kind of stuff and when it goes into your area you respond to what's going on in your area but of course the british work out that pretty quickly and so what they do is they just flood one particular area they'll go in a in a stream and not a formation in a stream across one route so the the boxes underneath that route get absolutely swamped whilst the rest of the boxes are sitting there twiddling their thumbs not doing anything and obviously that needs complete revamping and it doesn't get revamped until after operation gamora but the germans being the germans are able to do this very very quickly and 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 the second half of 1943 they completely transformed their air defense system to a system that's basically based on the same model as the british one i.e that you have coordinated um observers on the ground you have radar chain you have uh um, everything's linked up you have night fighters who are all coordinated together you have improved onboard radar etc etc um you have new weaponry like the schrager music these this upward pointing 30 millimeter cannons etc 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 and that is why you can't do Gamora if you're uh, uh, RF Bomber Command. You can't do it a second time around just like that because suddenly the Germans are waiting for you and, and they're better organised and their their defensive system is better. And because there aren't cities like Hamburg. Hamburg is, is sort of u- unique in, in its architecture. And, you know, Berlin is spread out. It isn't built up. It isn't a warehouse city. You won't get you won't get a firestorm going in Berlin. No, and it's a brick and stone building. It's a big brick and stone city rather than a wooden Hanseatic port. Exactly. You know, so which you, is... you, you've, 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 you can't actually recreate that set of circumstances. And with the Germans having got their finger out, and with the t- the appalling winter of forty three, forty four. And I want to raise my hand and say that I brought up the terrible yeah. winter of that uh, year. Um, uh, yeah, well done. The, the, I'm proud. The, 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 by the end of the year, a lot of a lot of because it is there is something very strange about um, about Hamburg because after all, Goebbels in, in his diary says if they do this they do this half a dozen more times or a dozen more times we're really in trouble we're finished this is as big a defeat he calls it as big a defeat as Stalingrad um, uh, uh, Hamburg. Um, well, so I think it is because it's so it's so it's so visual for everybody you know yeah. and, and it's so real and suddenly you're you know the the, the war is not something that's fought you know, thousands of miles away in Rostov, this is now something that's absolutely on your doorstep. And again, I think it's really important to to, to, to stress that, that when it comes to the strategic air campaign, you know, for those who don't know much about it, but are sort of, you know, have watched Memphis Bell or, or, or 12 o'clock high or whatever it might be, you know, one has this kind of sort of image of masses of B-17s going over by day and, and Lancasters going over by night uh, and, and plucky airmen and all the rest of it. And, and that somehow these air forces have just emerged sort of fully formed uh, and uh, are just hammering cities for kind of years on end and of course it's not like that i mean you know the first um raf bomber command raid into germany was on the night of i think the 16th 17th of may 1940 but but it was pretty you know half-baked and not very well thought out and most of 1940 most of 1941 and into 1942 were were, were years of struggle uh, and stress and, and a lack of effective and, and absolutely zero accuracy and it's not until harris takes over um arthur harris takes over as commander-in-chief of bomber command in february 1942 that things start to start to to to, to go a little bit better for, for bomber command 
But even then, Harris recognises that he's got a year at least until he's ready to launch his all-out strategic air campaign against Germany. And 1942 is a building year where he's building airfields, where they're then building airfields for the Americans as well. So that that hampers the development and expansion of Bomber Command. Um, That You are working all out on new um, homing devices and navigational aids. You know, I'm thinking not just about G, but also Oboe and H2S and all this kind of stuff, this sort of ground mapping radar, which is effectively what it is. These don't all come together, uh, and Pathfinders, of course, which Harris is initially very um, resistant to, but then recognises the, the, the value of them. It is not until the 6th of March 1943 that Harris reckons he's ready to launch his all-out strategic air campaign. And so, again, this is why 1943 is such a pivotal year, because you've got the Casablanca conference where you're going, OK, we're going to do this. You know, Acre, Ira Acre is saying from the American point of view, we want to do point blank. And everyone's going, yeah, good idea. Let's bring in Bomber Command. But, but you know, Bomber Command's going to carry on doing what it does, which is nighttime attacking. We're going to sort out the U-boats. We're going to lay the, lay the, the, the seeds. We're going to get our ducks in a row. Part of that is the strategic air campaign, a very, very big part of that. And it's only in the spring of 1943 that that is launched. And, and of course, the Ruhr, the industrial heartland of Germany, which is in the West, conveniently, geographically, for, for Britain's point of view, um, is 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 targeted to begin with in March and April and May 1943. And very effectively so, because suddenly you've you've done your groundwork. And, and from there on, it's a question of homing it. It's honing it. It, it. It's kind of making the whole system more efficient. It's learning, learning the lessons, learning what doesn't work, taking on the chin, the, the, the failures, but building from that and building ever bigger numbers. And it is only from the spring of 1943 onwards, you're, you're starting to see these kind of, you know, several hundred strong bomber formations going over by night and indeed from the american point of view by the by the sort of you know second half of the summer so it's it's not fully formed it is again it's in 1943 that this is all starting to kick off and i guess the pinnacle of 1943 from a bomber command point of view is unquestionably these two raids the dams raid and uh, and of course operation gomorrah the the bombing of the far bombing of, of hamburg and and it's interesting that these three big things happen in May. You, first of all, it's the defeat of the of the wolf packs in the Atlantic, and basically that means the Atlantic sewn up. That's in May. Then you've got the defeat of Axis forces in North Africa. The Allies become masters of the North African shores on the 13th of May. Then on the night of the 16th, 17th, you've got Operation Chastise, which is the Dams Raid. The Dams Raid is, is you know, the, the, the cynics say it was nothing more than a good PR um, story, but that's just absolute nonsense. You know, you've got two of the largest edifices in Germany completely destroyed. You've got a third one which is so badly damaged it has to be drained. These are the three largest dams in Germany, and ju- they're there because they're needed, and they're needed both for industrial processes, but also for the urban conurbations of of uh, in the case of the Myrna and the Zorpa, the the, the Ruhr, and in the case of the Ada Dam, you know the the industrial heartland around around Cassel, and the Germans do repair them by October 1943. But you have to think, 
why are they repairing them by 1943? If they're not important, if they're just, if it's just a kind of nice little kind of PR exercise, why are you diverting so many resources to rebuilding these things in breakneck speed at a time when so many other things are going on? And let's face it, you know, in the summer of 1943, you've got Hamburg, you've got Kursk, you've got the invasion of Sicily. You know, the, the, the Germans need to be repairing um, um, huge, great dams like a bolt in the head. And it's not just repairing those dams. It's also then defending every single dam in the whole of Germany, which they hadn't done up to that point. The only defended yeah. dam on the night of the 16th of May is the Myrna Dam. Yeah. No others are defended at all. But, but, so, but that's, that's illustrative of the fact that everything's an opportunity cost. So, you know, if, if, the, the, if the Allies are thinking economically and how they run their war, then, then striking at dams actually makes perfect sense, doesn't it? Because... It, 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 in a way, the last thing you'd want is your dams struck at, so, so to speak, or equivalent targets. The British know what it's like to have your industry def- uh, interfered with by bombing. They know they know its effect, which is why also they're they're so keen on delivering that effect. I mean, I I think I think what we're going to do, Jim, is um, we've kind of we've kind of I think served up uh, uh, a 1943 appetizer. What would what you may or may not know, if you're a reg- regular listeners probably know this, but if you're new to us, you may not. And maybe it's worth giving you a reminder. In, in September, uh, the 8th to the 10th, uh, near Silverstone, we have We Have Ways Festival, um, uh, which is a weekend of uh, tanks and talks and tankards. Um, but we're theming it around... And big bangs, things going bang and, and, and stuff, and a chance to, to meet fellow uh, Second World War enthusiasts, the Inflicted, the Independent Company, who are our patrons over on Patreon. But basically, we're theming it around 1943 because we felt this is the unsung year of the Second World War. If you're a Dunkirk D-Day person... Um, uh, 40-44. Open your mind <laughs> to, to the, to the <laughs> things that happened in 43. And after all, I mean, I think it's fair to say the most famous... The most famous bomber command raid is in 1943. You, uh, uh, you know, people don't know about Hamburg, but they certainly know about the Dams raid. Kursk is the, you know, if you're if you're into your armoured warfare, Kursk for a very long time was a headline battle of armoured warfare. And if you want Allied expeditionary warfare and strategy, grand strategy played out, there's Italy, um, Sicily, and into Italy, uh, as well as the shattering defeat of the Germans in uh, Tunisia. So there's lots to, there's lots in 43 and we're going to be looking at that in depth with talks and stuff in the in the autumn. We, I te- we tend not to do the hard plug on this podcast so you may have been caught out by me doing that but if you go to We Have Ways Festival uh, Google it, it'll, it'll come up. Um, weekend, there are weekend tickets, there are day tickets, um, there's glamping, we'd, lo- we'd love to see you there. And 1943 is sort of the sort of it's going to be the centre point of what we do. We're trying to link everything or tie everything through this epic Titanic year of the Second World War. We we will thank you very much for listening. We'll see you all again very soon. Uh, and we're going to record another one right now about more 1943 stuff, aren't we, Jim? We certainly are. We'll see you in a Bye-bye. We'll see you in a Bye-bye.